Welcome to the Heroic Minds Podcast, where we uncover the heroic stories of individuals battling through adversity and rising to the top of professional sport, business, and life. Uncovering the characteristics, the secrets, the tactics to become the hero of your own story. Because it is adversity that maximizes human potential. Whether you're a novice runner making your way from the couch to your first five-kilometer race, or an elite runner towing the line at the start of the Olympic marathon, you soon discover that within the beauty of movement, there comes a point where you arrive at a mysterious boundary, the border where one valiantly tries to quiet the mind while allaying incapacitating doubts and fears. This subtle negotiation, this dance with discomfort, is the birthplace of an inner fortitude. And it demands we keep moving when everything inside us is screaming for us to quit. By sharing his own experience and through the stories of running elites and everyday runners, Bedard explores running's ability to nurture inner resilience and build community. But most importantly, how running can help us work through the traumas of addiction, depression, loss, and anxiety. This book is a message of strength and hope. That's a little blurb about our guest today on the Heroic Minds podcast. So welcome back to the Heroic Minds podcast. On today's episode, we have Jean-Paul Bedard. He ran the Toronto Marathon six times in a row. Why, might you ask? Because running is his tool for wellness, power, and resilience. Jean-Paul was sexually abused at a young age and didn't tell his family until he had been married for 25 years and had a son in his 20s. Jean-Paul is a remarkable writer and speaker, as you now know from the intro. He wrote a book called Running Into Yourself, Unlock Your Strength, Heal Your Wounds, and Find New Life Through Running. Jean-Paul talks about his journey on this podcast, his journey through exposure therapy, his thoughts on the starting line at a race in South Africa, and how this trend of wanting a quiet mind may not be the right approach. Jean-Paul doesn't run with music. It gets in the way of the dark conversations that he has with himself. The conversations that allow for him to be resilient in every part of his life. But before we get to the episode, as always, a little shout out to True Local. TrueLocal.ca, high quality meat, locally sourced, individually packaged, amazing people, amazing company. Meat shows up to your doorstep. Voila. TrueLocal.ca, check them out. They're an amazing company. I get a handwritten note in all of my boxes. You go on their website, you choose exactly what you want, chicken, turkey, fish, scallops. There seems to be new products every week, and it's always high-quality food. So check them out at truelocal.ca. Again, that's T-R-U-L-O-C-A-L.ca, and give them a try. Easy to sign up, and to be honest, it's easy to cancel. They don't nag you to spend more, buy more. It's truelocal.ca. Use my discount code HEROICMINDS25, all capital letters, to get $25 off a regular size box and $10 off a personal size box. Alrighty, here we go. Yeah, I, I, well, here's the thing. with uh, When people come forward with uh, sexual abuse stories from their childhood, typically those are, are very late disclosures in life. Uh, it's usually in people's 40s and, and into their 50s that happens, unless you know it gets discovered during the time that the abuse was happening for a kid, but, uh, that's kind of the problem, right? Um, and with, uh, issues of childhood trauma that go untreated and, and undiagnosed for, for most of a lifetime, what ends up happening is you get this cascade of, of traumatic events throughout a person's life. And one of the, uh, 
typical symptoms of childhood trauma is uh, problems with addiction and mental health issues. And uh, both of those things were a big problem throughout most of my life. So how was it that you were living? Where were you at in your life right before, I guess, you opened up to your family and friends? Is Because you were putting all these miles and pressure on your body, yet you still had, and I think in a, a quote you had, not direct quote, but it was that you had an incredibly healthy body, but your mind was a disaster, I think was the word. And, and I wondered what, what life was like at that point in time. Well, after I, you know, I first, when I first sobered up, I met a couple of guys in a treatment program uh, for the addictions that we were dealing with. And they were training for a marathon, and they asked if I'd be interested in, in, in coming out and train with them. And this was really early into my sobriety. You know, I'd always been a runner, but not not uh, not at that super long distance. I would do more short-distance stuff, and I comp- competed in, in track in school. Um, so I decided, you know, okay, well, I'll give this long-distance thing a try. And so we would meet up every every weekend for a long run. And we would complain about how difficult it was staying sober. But the amazing thing was over the the course of the five or six months that we were training, something happened, right? I I started to become really accountable, uh, which is an important part of of getting sober, right? I was making a commitment to these guys that I would show up at 7 a.m. every Sunday morning for the run. And I was doing that. And I was setting a goal and I started to get physically feeling better very quickly. Um, and that's uh, one of the amazing things about uh, sobering up from from especially alcohol addiction is that when you take the booze out of the body, you really notice it quickly once you get through the withdrawal stuff, how much better you feel. Um, and so it, it was kind of good. I started to run with these guys. And uh, because we were all recovering addicts, we don't do things half measures. We were going on at full, full, full tilt, and we all qualified for Boston. Uh, and then I went back uh, the following year and I ran the Boston Marathon. And you know, for the next say 13 years of my running, I just started to become more and more addicted to to feeling the endorphins on the run. And so I quickly went from say 60, 70 kilometer weeks up to well over 100, 120 kilometer weeks in my training. And then instead of just doing one or two marathons a year, I, I jumped up to four marathons in the spring and then four marathons in the fall season. And then it just became this crazy, crazy addiction. And the more that I ran, the faster I got and the better I got. Uh, and then I got sponsored uh, by uh, Brooks Running. And things, you know, things were going really, really well. Uh, and on the outside, it looked like I had my my shit together. I, you know, I was a teacher with the Toronto School Board. Um, and, you know, at that point, I'd probably run well over 100 marathons around the world. And I was doing quite well. And uh, if, you look, if you look from the outside, people thought I had sort of sorted my life out. But I was physically healthy, but as you said, I was completely uh, mentally fragile. I had never dealt with the underlying issues that brought me to the addiction, and that was the fact that I was a survivor of childhood sexual abuse. And at this point of my life, I think I'd been married about uh, 25 years. We had a, a son who was in his 20s. And I'd never spoken to my wife about the fact that um, I had experienced sexual abuse as a kid. And, you know, I, 
funny thing was I was watching this program that used to be on CBC called Battle of the Blades, and that's where they've got ex-NHL players, and they pair them with professional figure skaters. And, you know, we used to watch this uh, every week, my wife and I, and it was the first first uh, night of the second season, I think, and uh, Theo Fleury, the ex-NHL player from Calgary, was competing, and he was competing for a charity that helped uh, survivors of childhood sexual abuse. And in that first episode, he was talking about the fact that he was a survivor. And as he was talking and doing a bit of the interview there on TV, I was sitting on the couch and, and tears were streaming down my eyes. And uh, it was the first time I'd really realized, you know, there might be another path forward for me. I could possibly, as an adult man, talk about this stuff, uh, try to get help, see what was, see where my life could improve. And a couple of weeks after that broadcast, I sat down with my wife and for the very first time explained to her what had happened to me as a kid and, and how I needed to get help. And I would say that, um, you know, there are probably a few important events in my life. Definitely number one was uh, finding my wife, Marianne, at the very first time and kind of starting off a life together. The second would be uh, the birth of our son, Noah, and definitely the third most pivotal thing in my life was that conversation with my wife when I said, this happened to me, and I don't know what to do, and I need help. And so that's kind of the beginning of this journey five years ago. As we continue to dive into that, it's interesting that you're putting all these miles on your body, and you're able to deal with those physical stresses and physical pressures and it's a little bit different than that mental pressure, which I think is an important concept to, to take note of, is that they're, they're very different. And I wondered how it is in that, so that process of where we're at in your story right now is how was it different for you dealing with the mentality while you're running versus the emotional pains and, and things maybe you hadn't dealt with growing up? How are they different and how did you have to learn to deal with those emotions? Well, when one of the... Uh one of the interesting kind of amazing things, I guess, about the, the human brain is that when it is under stress, especially a child experiencing severe trauma, be it physical or, or uh, sexual abuse, what the child is able to do uh, is to uh, almost disassociate from the trauma. It, your, your brain takes you to a different place from where you are right now. And I think it's a way to ensure that you survive whatever trauma that you're going through. And as a kid, that is an incredibly uh, important adaption that the brain takes, takes, takes under. But here's the thing. Um, when you become older uh, and you continue to disassociate from that trauma, uh, what protected you as a kid ends up becoming a real disadvantage as an adult because you start to numb yourself from those feelings of pain and hurt. And the, the more that you numb yourself, either, you know, by disassociating or by taking drugs or alcohol, you push away not only the bad feelings, but also all the love and support that's around you. So when I first started to sober up and I was still, you know, pushing away these feelings of the trauma from a kid, uh, it was an incredibly useful feature as a, a long distance runner, someone who was doing endurance sports to be able to really 
kind of compartmentalize my brain. I could take the pain that I was feeling physically and just put it in a different place and not focus on it, which allowed me to go farther and to run faster and to train more and to do all these incredible things. Um, However, um, the longer I did that, the sicker I became mentally, because I think in order to be a really healthy individual, you have to integrate all these parts of your body, your mind and the physical part. Uh, And I had just been spending all of my time on the physical stuff that I was not integrating my mind. And I think that's that's where the crisis came for me is when these I could no longer keep all these balls separate and in the air. I had to start bringing things together. Um, so what happened was when I finally had this conversation with my wife, um, I went to the doctor the next day with, with her and uh, figured out where I could get support as an adult man to, to deal with this stuff uh, and in, uh, registered in a treatment program in Toronto that was going to help me deal with this. But it wasn't supposed to uh, start up for about, I think, seven weeks, six or seven weeks. Uh, and in the meantime, I had to just deal with this fact that I'd you know, taken this genie out of the bottle uh, and didn't know what to do with it. And in the meantime, in those six or seven weeks before the, the treatment program was to start, I had to go down to Boston to run the Boston Marathon. And, and Marianne, my wife, uh, decided to come down and, and keep me company because she knew I was going through some hard times. And so I went down to run Boston, and, and uh, it was a really hard day for me. It was not one of my better races. At one point, they I had to come off the course because I was hyperventilating from crying so much, from all the emotions that were just percolating up inside of me. I managed to get back on the course, and I finished the race and you know, collapsed into Marianne's arm at the end. And uh, because we, we had a hotel right at the finish line, we had about three hours before our flight back to Toronto later that that evening. Uh, so I had a quick shower. Marianne checked us out of the hotel. Um, and then we were going to grab a bite to eat before heading to the airport. And we were back on the street right at the finish line there for maybe five, five, six minutes. And that's when the first bomb went off uh, from the Boston bombings. And then a few seconds later, the second explosion occurred. And it was absolute chaos, and it was horrific, and we were right in the middle of it. And it was the trauma from the childhood sexual abuse that I had just disclosed, and then being in the midst of this terrorist attack, it really sent me into um, a horrible mental state. Uh, I was later diagnosed with complex PTSD as a result of this stuff. Um, And... The funny thing was, no matter what I did after that point, running wasn't doing the same thing for me that it had done for the first, you know, 18 years of my sobriety. It was no longer um, making me feel better. Um, The fact the more that I ran, it felt like I was pushing out more emotions and more of these these uh, repressed memories, every, every footfall, it felt like more was happening. And I, for the next six months after Boston, I would cry on almost every single run. And I was a complete mess. And that was uh, a real tough time for, for uh, Marianne and I. Um, you know, for a year, she had been my care- caretaker, kind of looked after me. But we, we were really in uncharted territories, and uh, I didn't know what to do. At, at that point, 
did it occur to you at all that dealing with the emotions from the abuse as a child beforehand, did you realize that, or do you even think today that that would have decreased the experience of that complex PTSD at that time? Do you think uh, even that, that experience at the Boston Marathon, having a bomb go off and knowing you're in a situation like that, that could just cause the person without childhood trauma PTSD. Do you think that it worsened the effects because of the outstanding emotional uh, challenges you were dealing with? Yeah, well, that's basically, I mean, absolutely. That's, uh, um, I've had gone through a lot of trauma therapy over the years and continue to see a, a PTSD psychiatrist every couple of weeks here in Toronto. Um, and that's the difference between PTSD and complex PTSD. Um, complex PTSD happens when you have one trauma embedded on top of another. I, I think had I not been so um, recently disclosed in terms of the childhood sexual abuse and had simply been in the midst of the of the Boston bombings, um, I think I would be much further ahead right now in terms of kind of my psychological well-being, but it was the fact that that, that one very raw trauma event was uh, compacted by another one. And that's that's really creates a big problem for treating PTSD. Uh, and so that's that's the kind of the, the psychological mess that I'm in right now that I'm working on. Um, so kind of what one of the cool things that I decided to do, um, I... I went through this this treatment program uh, in Toronto at the place called the Gatehouse. And by the end of it, I, I started to feel much better. I started to feel like uh, I, I could possibly start to process this childhood trauma uh, and I could start to trust people because I wasn't trusting people. I always trusted my wife, Marianne. But other than that, I never really let anybody in because I was I was terrified. Um, and so I started to feel better, and I thought, you know, I'd love to re raise some money for this program that helped me. So I decided to go back to Boston the following year, and it was and it was a really difficult conversation that Marianne and I had because we both were terrified of going back to Boston and actually vowed for many months that we would never go back there. We would never put ourselves into such a vulnerable position again. And Marianne was really worried about me, um, and so she, you know, didn't think it was a good idea for me to put myself back there, especially so new in all this trauma therapy that, you know, I might end up undoing everything that I had accomplished with the, my, tra my uh, trauma care team. So I decided to go back to Boston, and the way I was going to raise money was I would do this, this thing called a double Boston marathon. And the plan was to start at the finish line, and I would run the 42.2 kilometers from the finish line all the way to the official start line in Hoppington. And I'd have about half an hour, and then I would turn around with the rest of the athletes, and I would run the marathon back into downtown Boston. So a back-to-back -back marathon, so 84.4 kilometers. And that was the plan. And so I started to train for it and went back to Boston and did this. And I ended up raising about $25,000 for this treatment program. And it was a huge success. Uh, and, and it it not only was an important thing for me to do physically and mentally, but it certainly changed the trajectory of the last four or five years of my life. Because here's what happened. Leading up to that, the newspapers caught wind of the fact that I was doing this. 
and I started to do a lot of interviews. I, I mean, I did, I can't even remember, countless interviews in the two or three weeks leading up to going down to Boston. And then when I was in Boston, did a whole bunch of stuff with the America media outlets while I was down there. And the reason I think it was so, so uh, captivating for a lot of the media outlets was that it ticked a lot of the boxes. Here I was uh, going back, uh, a survivor of the terrorist attack, the following year back into Boston, and there was a lot of heightened media attention to that. Also, the fact that I was a survivor of sexual abuse, and I was talking about it, but more importantly, that I was a man talking about it, because not a lot of guys that put themselves out to talk about this sort of stuff. So it it was a it was a big media story. And, a, and after all that media attention, what ended up happening was I was getting contacted, you know, uh, upwards of a couple hundred times a week from people all around the world who had either had similar experiences as kids or parents of children who had gone through horrific childhood sexual abuse and they were wondering you know what what the path forward could look like and you know i'm not a doctor i have no specialty i have no way of helping other people other than to say this is what i did this is how i've been trying to get through it and so it changed my life because I realized that now running could be a different thing for me. It didn't have to be a way of making me turn off my brain to avoid all of my years of addiction. It didn't have to be a way for me to hide from my, my trauma, which it was for years. Uh, it didn't have to be a way of me beating myself up because I didn't feel good about myself. I had zero um, self-esteem because of being a survivor of sexual abuse. I always felt that I was somehow dirty or that I wasn't worthy. Uh, but now my running could be a vehicle or almost like a, a landscape that I could could talk about broader issues of trauma and what it's like living with trauma. And so Here's the story that I try to put forth every day when I talk to people and, and, and through the activities that I do. I feel that trauma is very much like a scar on the body. And the, and the, the deeper the trauma, the bigger the scar on the body. Um, and the thing about scars is that they do heal. And when they heal, they leave scar tissue. And the thing about scar tissue is that usually... It's a little callous on the outside, so it's harder for, for feelings and sensations to get in. But also, that area of the body is a little less flexible. And so, I, I am one of these people who believes that when you are a survivor of trauma, you don't ever really move past it. You have to figure out a way of moving along with it. And whenever I'm speaking about the issues, I talk, I talk candidly about what my life looks like. And there are many days, I would say more than half the days, where I would say, given the choice, would I go back and decide not to make that disclosure about the childhood sexual abuse publicly to Marianne and to everybody else, and to just keep it buried and go on the way I was going on? There are many, many, many days where I think that would be the better option to have done. I know in my heart of hearts that I would I may not be sitting here today had I done that. I probably would have succumbed to my addictions and a whole bunch of other stuff 
if I had not got rid of the trauma. But I say that because it's not as though I've, I've kind of moved past it and I'm now in greener pastures. It's completely different. My, my life has opened up a hundredfold since coming forward, but it, it hasn't been easy. And I don't say that in, in any way to generate pity, but just to, to let people know that it's not an easy path. However, I believe it's, it's the only path that I can choose. And so that's, that's part of the story that, that I get out there. Right. And in, in that, that process and that it's, it is the only path, a quote I saw online from, from you was that it's, it's not about necessarily bending and molding. Like that's what I hear a lot of in these resilience talks today. It's that, and, and I've actually said it in the past as well, is that it's being adaptable and that's a part of it and, and being able to bend and, and whatnot. But you had said it's also, it's learning to break and re-break again. And, and a break is very different than bending and, and molding around things because a break elicits, you know, the rock bottom or, or very dark times compared to just bending and adapting. It makes it feel like you're still going on through and everything's okay and you're, and you're adaptable, which is great. But I think the, the really valuable part you brought to light in your wording was that it's learning actually to break. And I wondered in that situation, were, was it a form of breaking coming or opening up about that and coming out to the family on, on what those experiences that you had, was that a form of breaking or was that mending and, and bending, I guess? No, I, I, I would, I would probably describe it in using those words. It was a form of breaking, but um, also I would say that um, I, I believe that I, and I think many people who are survivors of, of sexual abuse would agree that uh, uh, we are not broken. I don't think it's a matter of, of uh, broken being we are damaged in any way. I don't think that's, that's what trauma is, but I think trauma, what it does is that it, it, it breaks you open. So it's not that you're broken in, in, in that you are defective. It's that you, you have broken open in that, um, things that you may have put around you to, uh, give you that false sense of security or protection are now somewhat penetrated and open. Um, and that, that's, that's a good thing. And it's also a real bad thing. Um, one of the important features that I've had to deal with uh, since coming forward with all this this trauma work is realizing how horrible I was at setting boundaries around myself in terms of uh, healthy boundaries and what that looks like. Uh, and that also trans, uh, transfers to how I've always treated sport. So... I mean, I treat my running in a lot of ways much different today than I did in the past. I mean, for years, what I would do is running was was very much like almost like a drug addiction where I would I would eat way too much crap at night, you know, a whole bunch of junk food, half a bag of cookies or whatever I was eating. Uh, and then even though my training schedule said I had 15 kilometers on the training schedule for the morning, I would go out and do 30 kilometers in order to burn off the calories that I had eaten the night before. And then I would feel crappy and tired and hungover and feel feel bad. And I'd feel sorry for myself. And I would feel exactly like I did every morning I woke up hungover. 
And so it was not a healthy relationship I had with sport. Um, and then, you know, this has, this has continued, this kind of unhealthy relationship I have with running in a lot of respects. So after I did the double Boston Marathon, I did this crazy thing the following year in Toronto, where instead of doing the marathon in Toronto back-to-back, uh, -back, I decided to do it three times. So I did a, a triple marathon, which was 126 kilometers. So I ran the marathon two times consecutively over the night, and then I lined up with everybody in the morning and ran the Toronto Marathon. <laughs> and then the year after, I ran the marathon four times. So I ran it three, three times uh, in, the, in, the, in the afternoon and night leading up to the marathon and then lined up with everybody and ran the marathon. And then, so that was like 168 kilometers. And then two years ago, I ran the marathon six times. And so, you know, the kind of cool thing was each time I do that, I mean, each time I do this, it, it, it generates a lot of media attention, um, which is great because the calls of, of, of families to the Gatehouse Treatment Center just completely uh, go up during the during the week or two of me doing one of these things and after it because it becomes it comes into the media and so I see I think about all the all the kids and all the families that you know are starting to get on the path to dealing with the trauma and that makes me feel good but at the same time it leaves my body completely destroyed um, and so I feel like crap and then I have to ask myself why am I doing this am I doing this because I still am that that nine-year-old kid who doesn't feel worthy, who just wants people to say, I'm proud of you, who just wants to feel better about himself. And so this is the this is the double-edged sword of what I do, right? So there's a lot of glory in what I do. I get a lot of I get a lot of uh, accolades uh, in terms of the the sporting community. But at the same time, Mentally, it takes a huge toll on me, and I have to question, like really have to question my sanity for what, for what I do. And so that's why I say that for me, trauma work is always a recognition that I have a long way to go. Right. And, and you talked about realizing that it's never totally fixed or cured or mm. moved, moved on from the situation. And it sounds yeah. as if, and, and the one thing I really appreciate about you and your message and, and what you had just said uh, right now is that a, a lot of times we hang on an idea that we'll fix something completely or we'll totally get rid of something and it'll, you know, just a matter of time and, and I keep going to therapy or I keep working on whatever I'm doing to try and push this behind me. And it, the thing that may bring you the most peace is actually realizing that unfortunately that is a part of you and it is a, a part of your body and your mind and, and, you existing today and i think it sounds as if you're accepting that there's opportunity to just find better ways to to deal with it and and better ways to work on your relationship with running and whatnot would that be would that be accurate that it's a continued process oh yeah absolutely uh i i would also you know i would also say that um one of one of the important lessons has been that uh the more you you kind of break open or maybe the better way of saying it is uh, the more times you break open, 
the more I believe you are able to deal with the real low, dark places that you fall into when you have broken open, because you realize that I've come out of this before. So if I just learn to to kind of get comfortable with the discomfort, to ride that uh, that real uncomfortable feeling of, of uncertainty, the more I will start to realize that sooner or later I'm going to get out of it again and I'm going to, going to be at a better place, uh, a healthier place. And that's, that is um, interesting because it allows you to fall into those dark places and not be destroyed by them, where, whereas somebody who is just maybe going into one of those dark places for the first time may be completely overwhelmed by it, I'm able to sit in those places and realize, you know what? Yeah, this is horrible. I don't want to be here, but I have hope that it's going to get better. And so what I have learned in terms of, of, of the hope and how to get that hope and how to hang on to that hope is I need to make sure I always have a few things uh, surrounding or within my orbit. And the first thing is community. I make sure that I'm connected. Even in the dark times, I make sure I'm connected. So for me, that is having open conversations with my wife about what's going on with me sort of emot- uh, emotionally and, and, and physically as well. It also means that I'm connected to a really good care team. So I make sure that I have an excellent doctor that I'm working with. My psychiatrist is well on board to what's going on with me all the time. But also that I surround myself with uh, very authentic relationships. And uh, I think people who have come through trauma or difficulties in their life one of the neat things that happens is this thing called social editing, where you you no longer have uh, the time or the energy to put into these really superficial relationships that you may have surrounded yourself with. And so you tend to pare down the number of people you have in, in your orbit. And you really just want people who are able to have authentic conversations with you. It doesn't mean you have to have it heavy, deep conversations, or you can't sit and talk about the raptors and stuff like that. But you have to be able to have the important conversations or listen to other people's conversations when those need to happen. So that's important. So community is really important. The other real important thing for me has been uh, the idea of ritual. Now, for me, that means two things. Number one is I have a whole bunch of physical energy that I have to burn off every day. Uh, it kind of helps me burn off a little bit of the uh, that nervous craziness that sort of regulates throughout my body. So I make sure I get out for some physical activity every day. For me, it's, it's you know, a two-hour to a four-hour run. For most people, it's not going to be that much, but it's it's getting the body moving. I think it's in a really important way of processing uh, stress, processing trauma, processing memories. I believe strongly in this idea of active meditation. And the other thing is, um, I also have a strong faith. So I'm, you know, I'm a, a practicing Catholic. I tend to go to mass uh, five or six times a week. Um, for me, it's an important time just to realize that there's a bigger picture and that I don't always understand the bigger picture. 
So it's a way of quieting my mind a little bit. For some people, it's yoga uh, or meditation, whatever works. But I, I think this this combination of physical movement idea and a way of quieting the brain, if you're able to do those two things on a regular basis, I think it's a really great way to regulate your ability to go into those dark places of discomfort whenever they appear. And I think whenever those two things, quiet mind, active body, aren't in harmony, that's when you set yourself up for not being able to be resilient. Right. That's an interesting way you put it because everyone is in this hunt for this quiet mind as opposed to a mind that may have some chatter going on, but it's in control or you're comfortable having a chattering mind, right? It's the, the hunt for, I don't want to have any thoughts going on. And maybe that's, is that the right approach? I, I uh, wonder. I, no, absolutely. And uh, um, I have been one of these, speaking of a quiet mind, I've been one of these people who have, was passionately or vehemently, I should say, against uh, running with music or an iPod or anything. And so for, you know, 20 years of my running life, I didn't use anything like that. Even if I was on a treadmill, I would just, you know, deal with the pain in my head and just suffer through for three or four hours on my own. And then about uh, a year ago, when things were going pretty tough for me uh, in terms of, of kind of the trauma stuff that was coming up, in the therapy, I decided to try to run with some music. So, you know, I put my, my, uh, iPod or ear pods in and, and went out and started running. And I ran with music for about five months and initially loved it. But then by the end of the five months, my running really started to deteriorate. I was beating myself up way more than I normally do. Um, and I just wasn't feeling any joy from running. And I realized at that time that it, it was coming down to the fact that I was hiding from my thoughts. I wasn't processing stuff anymore because I was just distracting myself on the run. Whereas for me, running has always been a way to process stuff and a way to let these recessed thoughts or memories kind of come into the foreground a little bit and to comfortably... Uh, you know, regulate them and germinate them throughout the run. Um, and so then I stopped, you know, cold turkey, took took the iPod, put it away, and went back out there just running in, in the silence of my own head, which is probably one of the noisiest places in the world, actually. But uh, since doing that, running has come back to me. Uh, it's, it's, it's returned as the gift that it was before. And I know there are lots of people who completely, like, it's kind of funny. It's like 50-50 on this. If you talk to other athletes, they want to either be completely distracted or they want to be in the zone. I'm one of these people who, who needs to be uh, in the zone with a clear head. Wow, that's that's cool. I've always gone back and forth on the headphone thing, and I, I love your approach to that. So I'm going to take that to the gym and, and treadmill as well with me. And before we get off the running and then back to the running at the end, I had another point that I saw online that was, was really interesting. And I think a lot of people have a different relationship with running for many different reasons, whether it's trauma from a certain experience or it allows them to do X or Y or Z. And I think that's why running is so popular and such a great form of, of physical fitness is because there's also that mental side. And online I saw that it actually had a big 
part in your life in regards to your image, your body, your relationship with your body and whether that's necessarily body image, whether that's specifically an internal thing. Uh, I wondered how running had allowed you to reconnect with your body because we've, we've kind of talked about it, but I thought specifically to your body. And the reason I bring it up is because there may be men and women and people listening that are unsure about their relationship with their body for whatever reason. And maybe they can bring this approach that you have to their physical life, whether that's going for walks or whether that's biking, running, whatever form it is. But I think I'd love to dive into that and hear how running is, has helped in your, your body image and, and your relationship with your body. Sorry. Uh, okay. Well, that's, I mean, there's lots to unpack there. Um, <laughs> so let's, uh, I guess I, I'll talk to you a little bit about sort of the, the, the body image stuff. And then I guess a bit of the trauma, trauma work as well around this. So as I mentioned, uh, uh, previously, one of the the effects of being a survivor of childhood sexual abuse or, or any sexual abuse, even as as an adult, is that you have a very different relationship to your body after you have experienced sexual abuse. For many survivors, they start to feel um, that their body, in some way, is dirty. Um, um, is no longer, you know, pure, however way you want to look at that. For many men who experience sexual abuse, often um, their body, they feel as though their body betrayed them in some way, because even though you are sexually abused, often you become aroused. And so that creates this whole other psychological uh, aspect for male survivors of sexual abuse. So for me as well, when I, when I, uh, you know, as a teenager and when I started to really get heavy into drugs and alcohol into my into my 20s, I spent a lot of time numbing myself from my body because I, I just, I didn't even want to think about it. I never looked at my body in the mirror. I was just, I was ashamed of it. Um, and it was like a constant soundtrack going on in the background of, you know, you're dirty, you're not worthy, all these things going on. And so the amazing thing about running is that it forces you to connect to the ground, to the earth, as you, you know, each footfall. And so it is impossible to run without being somewhat connected to your body. And so running kind of a, was a way of me me reconnecting with my body and, and falling back into myself. And actually, the title of the book that I wrote was Running Into Yourself. And that's really what I did. So when I first sobered up, I was basically running away from my life, running away from myself and my addictions. But the more I ran, I ran towards myself and into myself. Um, and as a survivor of trauma, you know, whatever trauma it is, it could be, you know, being a survivor of a terror, witnessing a terrorist attack or, you know, the death of a child or being a survivor of sexual abuse or domestic abuse or whatever, being a survivor of trauma one of the things that your brain does is it forces you to disassociate from the trauma in order to to protect yourself and running forces you to do the opposite it forces you to reassociate with yourself because you have to be in constant i mean whether you believe it or not you have to be in constant dialogue with your heart with your with your with your breathing everything is is being 
you know, you're constantly like looking like a pilot looking at the instrument control panel in front of you. Am I going too fast? You're watching for traffic. You're seeing what your pace is. If you're on a treadmill, you're, you know, making sure you don't, you don't wipe out. There's a whole bunch of stuff going on. You have to be in complete awareness all the time. So that's why running is a really good form of trauma therapy or walking or anything that gets you connecting to movement. Um, and now is that difficult question that you talked about, kind of body image. Um, and this is a this is a loaded question in the running community, um, and something that I've talked about a lot in terms of the sponsorships that I'm involved in with the different uh, uh, organizations that uh, that help me in in pursuing my athletic uh, pursuits. Is that we really need to change what our image is of a runner. So for for years. You know, big running magazines like uh, Runner's World would have very, what we consider iconic images of runners on the cover. So very, you know, lean, some would say uh, borderline anorexic uh, men and women on the cover. Uh, this is what a runner is. And one of, the, one of the really important changes that's happened in terms of half marathons and marathons and uh, all the other kind of adventure races that have taken off over the last 15 years is that that look of what an athlete should be has changed. And so now it really encompasses anyone who has the courage to tie up a pair of shoes and to get out there and to compete against himself or herself. And so this is a lot of a lot of the problems that I deal with, right? So because I'm, uh, you know, an elite runner, I have to worry about what my weight is all the time, right? I have to, I, so I'm always, you know, checking myself on the scale, making sure that I'm at my proper race weight or my training weight. And so it's, it's a problem for me. I, I fight this body image thing because I want it to be an inclusive sport. I want there to be no barriers to people entering the sport. I think everybody should have the opportunity to, to realize how running can transform your life. Um, however, at the same time, I inadvertently feed into those old, old stereotypes of what a runner's body looked like. And so I, I don't know. It's, it's one of those things that I, that I struggle with. I don't have an answer to it. Um, but I can tell you that, uh, I've, I've lined up against people in races and I've looked over and I've assessed the competition and thought, okay, you know, this person doesn't look as fit. And I have been, <laughs> I have been paid the price for those comments over the years in my head um, because often the fittest people don't do well it, uh, i've always had this goal in the back of my head that I, i'd really like to to climb mount everest because i think i'm pretty physically fit but from what i hear the most physically fit people are usually the ones who are are, are not doing well when they're when they're at altitude so um it's a humbling experience right i think the the value of those conversations to will help move the needle. I had this cool experience about uh, five years ago. I competed in uh, a marathon in South Africa called the Comrades Marathon. And it's not really a marathon because it's it's 89 kilometers long. So it's, you know, a double marathon. And it's right through really, really mountainous uh, country terrain. And I lined up 
at the start line, and there's 14,000 runners. It's the largest uh, ultramarathon in the world. And, you know, it's predominantly African. And I remember lining up, looking around, and I, you know, the vast majority of the 14,000 people all looked like the the Kenyans and the Ethiopians that we see in the North American races who who win it every year. Everybody looked like they were, you know, a sub 210 marathoner. And I've sat there and I was standing there thinking, I am, I am way out of my league here. But, you know, here's the thing, even though they all had that iconic uh, African runner physique, they they weren't at that 210 marathon pace. So it was it was kind of, oh, so it, it can go both ways. Right. So it was kind of a neat experience. I was I was I was the I was the overweight guy in the, in the race, even though I'm, I'm, I'm usually the underweight guy everywhere else. <laughs> That's amazing. That is. See, that's again, it's those conversations. It's it's bringing light to those, I guess, realities, right? It, that's yeah. reality. And that's that's so powerful. When you talked about the work at the gatehouse in Toronto online, yeah. I was reading about the treatment. The way you write is incredible and the way you speak is incredible. You'd explained it. Exposure therapy similar to and I don't know if that's the only therapy you're doing. I'm sure there's many more, but I wanted to, to dive into that. Uh, I don't know exactly how it works. I have a rough idea from the outside, but I wondered if you could briefly walk me through that process for you of the exposure therapy to your past childhood traumas and how that moved along, how it got easier, how or maybe it didn't, maybe it got more difficult, uh, but that that process. Well, um, I, the gatehouse follows uh a protocol that's quite similar or one that's that's used i guess throughout a lot of uh sexual abuse trauma work so it was a 16-week program um and you are in a in a group i was in a uh, an all men's group and i think there's usually between 10 and 16 men in the group um, we would meet once or twice a week uh, for two or three hours and there would be um a uh, licensed, uh, trained trauma uh, leader in the room as well, and so the first the first little bit uh, kind of gets you looking at just trauma and its effect on the body and the brain in general. Um, that's a stuff like disassociation, lack of boundaries, all all of these these things, and then once you kind of get the background issue of what trauma does to the body and to the brain that's when you get to the exposure stuff and at this point you've been with with the same group of guys for almost a month and you have to realize that in that group it's a wide spectrum of people there are people who are you know in my group there was uh, i think the youngest was 20 years old and then there was a man who was in his uh late 60s uh there were, you know, teachers, construction workers, police officers. There was a firefighter, uh, a couple of accountants. It was just, you know, a reminder that sexual abuse doesn't discriminate. It kind of has a wide swath. But most of us had never talked openly about what had happened to us as kids. And so here we were, um, and then the first, the first guy kind of discloses a little bit as much as you want about what happened to you as a kid. And it was a weird feeling hearing somebody talk about, about being that vulnerable kid 
and the rest of us realizing that the world did not crumble when those, when that person started talking openly about what had happened to him. And it kind of gave all of us a little bit more courage to talk openly in that room. And so the what you what you are building up towards in in this type of a trauma program is this thing called connecting to your your inner child. And so what we were asked to do was to find a photo taken of us as a, of a, as, a, as a child, you know, around the time that the sexual abuse happened or was occurring. So for me, it was when I was nine years old uh, from a hockey coach. Um, and you're supposed to sit down with this photo at home and write a letter to this kid. It's called a letter to your inner child. And you're, and you're, and you're to talk to this kid from the perspective of where you are now as an adult, where you are safe and talk to this kid and to say, I know, I know what, I know what you're going through is scary and all the stuff that must be going on in the child's life, but just to kind of reassure the child that everything's going to be okay and that you're going to get through it. Cause as a kid, you think, that's it. You know, life's over and everything, every noise from that point on, every smell, everything that's associated with the, with the sexual abuse continues to haunt you. So you're just basically reassuring this child. So then we all did this. We all wrote this little letter. And for some people, it was a paragraph long. And for other people, it was, you know, two pages long. And then we, we got together again the following week. And we each stood up uh, and we read our letter aloud to the other 12 men in the group while the other men sat in the circle and we passed around the photo of the child who was being talked about in the letter. And by the end of that night, there was not a dry eye in that place. And we realized that, you know, we were all going to be okay. Not only were we going to be okay individually, but as a group, we were all going to be okay and we were all going to be supportive. And that to me was the first opening of my trauma work, but very much like my, you know, I've been, I've been going to uh, 12 step meetings for my addiction now for, for over 22 years. And here's the thing. It's really easy to stay, to stay sober when I'm in a church basement with a bunch of other addicts talking about uh, the issues around sobriety. It's very different to go into the workplace, to go into your family home, to, you know, go out onto the street, to pass the, uh, the, the patios all open in the summer where people are drinking beer and having a good time. That's where life gets hard. That's where sobriety gets hard. And so very much the trauma group was like this. It felt safe when I was in this group of other men and we were talking about our lives and, and what it's taking to rebuild them and that we're going to be okay. But it was learning to take that, those initial steps that I was experiencing in that trauma group and transport those out into the real world that to me has been the hard part of this trauma work. And it's something that I continue to do, but I'm sure, you know, from other people, you've other guests that you've had on this program and from your own story, the more openly we talk about those things that we face, those obstacles, those fears, those vulnerabilities, you know, there are always going to be people who are going to take advantage of that information once you put it out there. And I, and I'm not naive about that. I'm always open about that. Every time I, I speak publicly about this, I get slammed on Twitter from trolls. That's just the way it is. 
But you have to realize for every one of those negative voices, there are literally hundreds of supporting voices of other people who then have um, the safety to open up about stuff that they're going through. And for me, that's what really moves the needle in terms of, of open trauma work is being able to create um, an opportunity to have dialogues. And I'm one of these people who believes there's no answers uh, to these types of things, but maybe the answer is the fact that we have conversations and the more conversations I have and the more open I am about what I'm going through, what I continue to struggle with. I mean, that's another day I'm alive. That's another day I'm connected, which is way more than I felt five years ago when I was facing what I thought was, you know, a very short life. I'm, as I try to take in all the ideas and concepts and learnings you've, you, we've talked about, it's amazing that it's been stemmed from, or however you want to put it in this relationship with running and how this physical stressor or this physical event has now crossed paths with the mental side and brought all these things. And, um, it's pretty, it's amazing. And I, th I thank you so much for sharing. I, I've, I think if it's cool with you, we could hop into the, the running side of things. And I guess on a more of a performance side, you're from what I hear. And I, I if I get these numbers wrong, you have every right to, to correct me <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> because you deserve it. Uh, 190 to 230 kilometers a week you're running. Is that right? Uh, yeah, I usually max out around 200 kilometers. Yeah. Yep. Wow. Wow. And in 2015, you were named the Canadian runner of the year and you've run. So to this date, because these are old articles and again, wow. you deserve all the each meter in the in these <laughs> stats. You've run over 125, 100 marathons, 125. Oh, yeah. No, now I'm well over 160. But this doesn't. Oh. But like just, to, you know, it doesn't include the marathons that I run every week in training so i run the marathon distance a lot but that's a, yeah it's 160 marathons like official marathons that official so then what would it be roughly non-official like just your the la the kilometers you've put on your body um well there are i i you know throughout the year i probably do um an additional 35 marathons a year just in training. I mean, that's, I, I run way more than that, but that's like a day, one day where I'll do more than 42 kilometers. I do that about 35 times a year on Holy. average. And do your races become training <laughs> if you're running yeah, that I mean, many? I, at, the, at this point of my life, I'm, you know, I'm an old guy. So, um, you know, I, I, I do very well in terms of, of my age group. I'm not winning marathons or anything like that at this point. Um, but, uh, yeah, marathons are, 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 are all about, you know, training to me that the best part of it is the training part of it that's that's where i get the the biggest the biggest kick right is is the seeing seeing the limits that i can i can push my body um and <laughs> it's it's a fine line between uh athletic success and complete annihilation where you're just you're just oh what have i done that was going to be my question is, so you talked about doing these marathons two, three, four, five, six yeah. times. Yeah. When, and then my initial question was going to be, how do you prepare for it mentally? And I would think I've kind of got a piece of that from, from this entire conversation we've had. But my, I guess my 
question that I'd like to ask more is after that first marathon, and I ask this because sometimes there are days I get to the gym and I'll do one set. I like doing high intensity training and I'll, it'll be like the worst set ever. I did six exercises. I'm gassed. And I know in my mind, I have five more left five times through this circuit or whatever it is. When you know you have, you've completed a marathon and you have five more to do, Hmm. what is that thought after the first one's completed? Well, the year I did, so two years ago when I did the, the Toronto marathon six times, um, I was uh, I had set up an, an interview to be on Matt Galloway's uh, CBC program, and he wanted me on there. <clears throat> excuse me, at seven thirty in the morning, and the uh, you know I said, can I can I possibly come in and pre-record it the day before or something? I said, no, no, it'd be better if you do it live. So uh, I the way that that worked out was I had to do I had that was at the end of the very first marathon. So I, I had to run the first marathon and then I had, you know, 15 minutes t- to get to the CBC studio to go live on air and then did the 15 minute interview with Matt and then had to go back out to start running again for the second marathon. But, you know, I was, I had screwed up the timing a little bit. And so it meant that that very first marathon of the six, I, I had to go really fast. So I think we, it ended up being like a, like a three, a three twenty five marathon or something like that, which was just not not in the game plan. And so I was gassed by the time I I finished the first one, and then I had to go on air and then go back out and do and do five more. Um, uh, so here here's the incredible thing. So it's like my whole life has led up to me being able to do these types of things. As an addict, I was totally used like as a practicing drug and alcohol user i was i was used to uh banging my head against the wall repeatedly and so that's kind of what this is like it's uh getting used to oh this feels horrible like waking up hungover throwing up having to get on the subway and go to work it kind of felt it that's what it feels like when you do these multiple marathons it's not uh a matter of will i feel crappy it's how many times will i feel crappy and how am i going to get through it and so my life as a, as a practicing addict has, has put me in good stead for, for learning to kind of to, to, to run when I'm feeling really nauseous and uncomfortable. Um, the other, the other thing is, um, I'm very good, um, at compartmentalizing time. And so I, I just, I don't look at it like, okay, I've got six or five more marathons to do. I just think, okay, I just take it like five kilometers at a time. Um, and I've been blessed to have an incredible supportive spouse, Marianne. And so what she usually does is she usually comes out on a bike and supports me on these things. So she's beside me uh, on her bicycle and she's got you know, a whole bunch of uh, nutrition for me in, in the, on the bike and all my hydration. And she's, you know, keeping my brain semi-occupied, which is good. And also, because uh, I live in Toronto, I'm surrounded by an amazingly supportive running community. And so I always have people who are out with me all night long, come out and run either a full marathon with me or 5K or 10K or whatever they can. Uh, And so they're keeping me company. At one point during the six marathons, I think we had about uh, 20 people out with us uh, for part of the marathon. So that was kind of good. Um, I, I also go into all of these things thinking that I, I can fail and it's okay. 
um, and maybe fail is not the right word because fail has a negative. <laughs> I can I can back out at any point because I'm I'm not doing these things for anybody else. I'm doing them just just for me and to prove that uh, I can I can you know stay in a in a period of discomfort. And so if I've artificially said I'm going to stay in a period of discomfort for six marathons but I'm only able to stay in that for five marathons, then I go into it knowing that it's okay. You know, the world's not going to crumble if I don't finish it. I Now that's, that sounds like a healthy approach. Sorry, continue. I just, I really like that because I'll put pressure on myself in certain exercises and when I'm pushing myself and sometimes it's a little crazy and yeah, um, yeah, not, not as much so, the long endurance, but. Yeah, Ben, I'm not saying I'm not crazy about this thing. And, 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 and Marianne would be the first person just like, what are you talking about? <laughs> um, but, you know, just to put this into like a more immediate perspective. So this year, uh, 2019, is the 30th anniversary of the uh, Toronto Waterfront Marathon. And that's kind of my hometown marathon. And Alan Brooks, who is the race director, is a really good friend. Uh, and so I've set up this crazy thing where it's the 30th anniversary, so... I kind of wanted to run the marathon 30 times this year. So the plan is to run it, uh, to run the official marathon course every day for 29 consecutive days. And then on the, th and then on the 30th day, which would be race day to run the official marathon with everybody. So it would be 30 consecutive marathons, uh, 12, 1200 and I think 50-something kilometers. It's the, dis the equivalent distance of downtown Toronto to uh, downtown Houston. So it's it's a long thing, right? And so I've started to train for this thing, and I'm going into it. But here's to be, you know, completely honest and transparent about all this. I, I'm also going through a real tough time uh, in terms of, of kind of my mental health right now, where I'm really struggling with anxiety, and, you know, one of the beautiful things of being, being a recovering uh, drug addict is I can't really take any of the anti-anxiety medications because I, you know, tend to abuse them if I use them. So um, I just kind of have to suffer it on my own and through the help of, uh, you know, my trauma care team getting support for me. So I'm already starting to stress about being able to do these 30, uh, starting to think maybe this is not a healthy thing. Maybe I shouldn't be doing this. Um, and, you know, I had a conversation with Marianne two days ago saying, you know what, I think I'm going to, I'm going to pull the plug on this. I don't think, <laughs> I don't think this is a, a good space for me to be in. And, and she just said, listen, don't make, you don't have to make that decision now. Um, you know, don't, don't put that pressure on yourself either way. Just, kind of do the training and, and see where you are at. And uh, every once in a while I look at her and I think, my God, this, this, this woman is from like another planet because she does, <laughs> not, she does not think like I think. Um, her brain actually looks like it, it works properly. Um, <laughs> whereas I, I get so, so far down the rabbit hole that I can't see out lots of times. Um, so it's really important. That's why I go back to that earlier point that I made, how important it is for me to, to be surrounded by lots of people with different opinions. Um, and I think if you just surround yourself by people who um, are supportive of you, but don't challenge you, health, healthily challenge you, then it's a problem. Um, and so 
I've been lucky that Marianne has always been one of those people who supports me unconditionally, but at the same time challenges me, you know, to say, you know, I don't know if that's a good idea or, you know, give it some time, give it a break, think about it again. And so that's where I'm at. I'm hoping to be able to do this, but I'm at the same time, I'm thinking maybe I won't be able to do it. And so that to me is a huge difference. So when I look at my psychological gains over the last five years, I don't see very many gains. But when I think about the mindset that I had going into the double Boston four years ago, where I said I could not fail, I had to do this, I had too many people watching this, you know, I, the stage was too big. Uh, you know, the only option was to finish or to die, right? That's kind of what my brain was telling me. Now I think I'm in a healthier place because I've still put the same pressure on myself, but I also have like a safety latch or, or a, a rip cord that I can pull and say, you know what, time out, I'm going to have to pull out. And I'm, and I'm okay with that. I mean, I, I'm not going to say I'm not going to be disappointed with it, but I'm, I'm okay if that's where it has to go. I wonder if, and I may, I don't think I'm the individual for the job, but just continuing this conversation. And I wonder if you find someone for each day that can be with you, whether it's on a bike or whether it's running, that can be that, that's just that extra mental support there that can keep you going for the next day and the next day. I mean, I don't even know. I couldn't even fathom putting pen to paper on a plan for that, but as a, as a peer and as a, a friend now and, and having this conversation, that's my two cents. So take that as you will. Yeah, uh, no, I, I, but... I get that, Ben. I appreciate that. And I, I already know that uh, going out to it, I'll have a, I'll have lots of support in terms of kind of daily people coming out for little bits of time. But uh, what, what I always have to remind myself is that, you know, four or five days into that, I'm going to bed realizing I got to get up and do it again. Um, and that's a that's a pretty that's a pretty dark and lonely place to be in. Um, and, yeah, I can't. Uh, you, I guess you can't bring all those people to bed with you. No, no, it's not a lot of places, right? No, no one's no one's gonna rub my feet for five hours because they're like they're killing me. Um, so, right. I, I, what I what I think we always forget is that, um, and here's why I think the the marathon is such an incredible sport or any kind of those long endurance things is it's, you know, it's not so much the, um, the finishing of these events. That's, that's, that's a, that's a great accomplishment. Every time I, I'm at a, a marathon start line and, you know, I see five or I mean, sometimes 50,000 people lined up for a, some of the bigger marathons. And I think about all of the hours and hours of training that people have put in, you know, all those lonely runs on a Saturday and Sunday, throughout the winter in the snow or in the rain or in the dark and missing family commitments and going to bed early the night before and all that stuff. And I think that's the accomplishment. It's that you, you kind of put yourself into that commitment to get to the start line. And what happens on the start line is just a, you know, a bonus. And I think, uh, that's what Olympic athletes feel as well, right? It's just, it's just getting there. I mean, once you get there, you really don't want to come in second <laughs> you, you want to come in fifth or you want to come in first, but you really don't want to come in second because that would suck huge. Um, but uh, that to me is, is, is the whole thing. So I think people are most impressed by the fact that I and a lot of other people are willing 
to just put yourself out there. And that comes back to that whole Brené Brown quote, right? The, are you willing to be in the arena? If you're not in the arena, uh, then, you know, you have no, no, uh, right to judge me. And so I, I think that's, that's the amazing thing. And, and when I talk about people who are resilient and I've met so many incredible people throughout the last five years and working on, on the book that I wrote, and Kelly was one of them is that, uh, when you're willing to throw yourself out there, I think you have to give those people a lot of credit. And so, you know, I, there are lots of things I'm, I'm, I'm really shitty at and there are lots of people I disappoint and there's lots of other things that I'm not great about or that I would like to improve in myself. But when it comes to this one thing of putting my body through the ringer, because I've set myself a challenge, I think, you know, I, I, I'm an Olympic athlete when it comes to that kind of commitment. And, uh, to me, I'm proud of that. And that's a huge difference. When I look back at that nine year old kid who was, you know, I, you know, to bring the thing full circle, I was a nine-year-old kid. I, you know, I, for years I was like, you know, I was captain of our hockey team. I was a rising track athlete in the city. You know, I, I was, I was, uh, I had a lot going for me. I played hockey and, uh, all of a sudden I went from that kid to being 13 years old and I was in an emergency room, um, with my heart stopped from my second, uh, overdose. So what happened in those few years, basically what happened in those few years was the results of trauma that uh, didn't get treated. And so when I look back at at that kid, the the first, the kid that had, you know, this bright future ahead of him and looked pretty innocent. And then I look at the, at the, the young teenager who, you know, was completely off the rails for so long. And then I look at myself now as a 53-year-old man who feels a lot more like that innocent kid who has a bright future ahead of him than the teenager who uh, looked pretty dark and bleak. So I think uh, all in all, I'm, I'm in a happy place. That brings us to the end of another Heroic Minds podcast. Remember to subscribe. Leave a positive review if you could. Send me an email to keep the conversation going. All the above. Greatly appreciated. Thank you for listening. I'm Ben Finelli. We'll talk again soon.